Welcome to Earth, A Love Story. I'm your host, Robin Lassiter. I'd like to give a little shout out to our new listeners and to the incredible folks who have joined our Patreon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I am really excited about the community that is building here and look forward to more connected engagement as we grow together. And for new folks, if you would like to listen to me read my entire book, also titled Earth, A Love Story, you can start at the very first episode, preface, and continue through episode 15. Then catch up on all the great guests who've been on the podcast since, because they are all amazing. Also, guess what? The actual book, paper and ink and spine that we can hold in our actual hands is so, so, so close. It will be out very soon, and I am very excited. This week, we resume our conversation with John Hardigan in part two of Samsara is for Lovers. John talks recovery, spirituality, community, and continues to gift us with wisdom and compassion through his vulnerable and open-hearted sharing. I learned so much from him, and I hope you enjoy. I feel like I've just been kind of going on about like places I've been and 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 I just kind of want to summarize that that what I think is most important is not like all the different places that I've been or my relationship with with people who hustle in different ways from trafficking drugs and humans to being sex workers and panhandlers and whatever it is but ultimately that it's just that everywhere that I went, there was always this element of scarcity and competition that existed, whether it was on the streets with people who were panhandling competitively, or if it was people who had like biker gangs or people who were affiliated that had that sense of competition too. There was always just this sense of scarcity and that, that we didn't have enough and we needed to get hours in order to get what we were having cravings for. And that was the primarily the motivation for a lot of the sex work. And that was the motivation for a lot of people's hustle. And that was pretty much the motivation for criminal behavior. And all of these neurotic behaviors were really just people reaching out in strange ways trying to get their needs met that couldn't get their needs met in any way. And a lot of people were ignorant to what their needs even were because everything just gets so clouded by cravings and neurosis and that whole cycle of suffering. When I was 33, 34, when I was 34 years old, I was finally able to get a couple of months sober. And at that point i hadn't done narcotics and for longer than alcohol it had been a considerable amount of time i think i i think i have seven months with no narcotics longer than i have with no alcohol in my sobriety and i haven't had a drink in um five years so it's like five years and seven months for narcotics but it took me many, many years of going in and out of meetings, and it took me many failures and many 
24-hour coins in AA. AA was my primary source of recovery. It was the structure, the program, the skeleton of my recovery was Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was also because the people that I grew up with when I was a kid who lived under the bridges when I was 16 and 17 and who were in those abandoned houses were in AA, the ones that survived. So the first AA meeting I ever went to, I actually met somebody who had kind of, I lived in abandoned houses with them. I panhandled with them. I slept under bridges with them. They were a heroin addict, but they got sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. They had never really suffered from alcoholism per se, but the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in Pittsburgh produced a more stable environment for recovery than the Narcotics Anonymous environment did in this in that particular city. Some places are, are more than others. It's really regional. But it was just, um, it was just, it wasn't uncommon to see people in 12 step Alcoholics Anonymous in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that weren't alcoholics, that were heroin addicts. And I got, I got sober with those people and I understood the steps. The steps were really the first method of spiritual accomplishment that I truly understood. And I did not realize exactly how profound that they were when I got in there. And if I did know, I I like to think I would have gotten sober faster or sooner, but it doesn't really matter. I'm still alive, so it's all good. But I um I had an experience with the steps, and that experience was that I I couldn't tell the difference between the 12 steps and the 12 trials of Hercules. And I couldn't tell the difference between the steps and the 12 trials of, of Milvarepa. And I couldn't tell the difference between the steps and the eight limbs of yoga. I, there was just no difference. It was all the same. I couldn't tell the difference between the steps and the Buddha Dharma. There was just nothing. Everything was just the same. Everything just became equanimous. There was serenity. There was no difference in anything, which a lot of people didn't like that language because people were like, no, it's different. It's different. You can't just say everything is the same because it's not. And they're right and wrong at the same time. We're neither right or wrong. And we are both right and wrong. And that's really the only thing that there is. But my mind couldn't tell the difference between anything. It was all the same. And I had a profound experience where, you know, the the first step of admitting that we were powerless and that our lives were unmanageable was no different than the truth of suffering that, you know, we're powerless over these substances, these cravings. Well, like, what's the difference between being powerless over substances and cravings and suffering being a result of our attachment? What's the difference between attachment and cravings? And what's the difference between unmanageability and, and samsara? If, if unmanageability is insanity and samsara is insanity, as Einstein defined it by doing the same thing over and over again, I mean, samsara is doing the same thing over and over again. 
and so is you know drinking alcoholically or using addictively it's there's no real difference in these uh experiences so the first the first step was just very much like wow this is the first this is the first of the four turnings of the dharma wheel this is the truth of suffering that we are powerless over when you name it let's say thought we're powerless over our thoughts and as a result our life becomes unmanageable or we experience some sorrow we become attached to our thoughts we become adverse to our experience we become ignorant these are the three fires of samsara and i and i i saw it also in the yoga sutras of patanjali and and the in the limbs of yoga and when it goes into the niyamas and it talks about tapas and tapas is this practice of austerity and when we talk about austerity it's really something that we need to practice every day and if our practice is to be mindful of our relationship to powerlessness and unmanageability or if our practice is to be mindful of our own mental experience and our relationship to attachments and aversions then there's no difference between the first step and, and tapas. Tapas and the first step are one. Tapas and the truth of suffering are one. If if we practice the truth of suffering with austerity, we can achieve liberation. And and then we move into the second step. And I mean the first step is is synonymous with the Nemean lion also in the Twelve Trials of Hercules, whereas you know we have this beast that lives in a cave that has two entrances like our brain has a right and a left side and we think our mind is in our brain and as a result we have this egoic aspect of who we think we are and what we think we know that is this lion that lives in our head and we think that's our mind but it's actually just this egoic um kind of struggle with control and the only way to actually tame the Nemean lion is you can't attack it with any weapons because it's impervious to weapons so you have to choke it out and choking it is something that controls something's breath if you are choking something you control its access to air so it's a direct reference to air and breath and if we can actually control our breath we can calm our Nemean lion we can tame the Nemean lion that has its cave with two entrances the left and right sides of the brain in this, there's no difference between controlling our breath and reflecting inward on our relationship with attachment and desire than there is to the truth of suffering and the first step and the practice of tapas. So all of these things, although the language and the perspective are different, we're talking about the exact same stuff. We move into the second step where we came to believe that a power greater than self could free us, could return us to sanity. And to be returned to sanity is no different than to leave samsara. So a power greater than self can restore us to sanity. So a power greater than ourselves can can liberate us from our relationship with samsara. And there's literature in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that isn't in the Narcotics Anonymous book. It's on page 68 that says that we must trust in an infinite God and not a finite self and those are the instructions given by the big book on how to find a higher power so it right there it says that we we must trust infinite and not finite 
And there's no difference between the second step of finding the infinite and trusting it than there is in the second turning of the Dharma wheel, which is the truth of impermanence, where we let everything that is finite decompose in our experience. And what we're left with is this infinite aspect of consciousness and energy that has no beginning and no end and can simply just transfer forms, which is the infinite which is in all beings and in all phenomena and in all space. So we, we accomplish this in Buddha Dharma by practicing the truth of impermanence, which are directly correlate with the agori practices of the, of the yogis. And they also directly correlate with the second niyama, which is svadhyaya. And svadhyaya means like, to go to internalize our experience. We go internal. So we go internal and we find the infinite within. And and the infinite is what we should trust. And what we shouldn't trust is the finite. And this is the second step. And um, you know, this is this just continues into the third step where we surrender to that infinite and that takes us into the niyama of Ishvara Pranayana, where we do a deep trustful surrender to Ishvara, who is the, you know, the God with many faces. It's just everything that exists is a different face of this God, this avatar of Vishnu, or however you'd like to recognize it. So everything is just a different face of this infinite, and we surrender to it both in yoga and in this third step, and also the third turning of the Dharma wheel in Buddha Dharma, which is the truth of Samadhi, which is where we actually recognize the infinite or the Buddha nature or the bodhicitta in everything. And we allow ourselves to become a part of everything and we become absorbed into everything. And it turns out that the whole universe is inside of us and we are inside of the universe simultaneously that the, we are a single drop of water in the ocean, but we are also the entire ocean in a single drop. And this is the result of both the third step, Ishvara Pranayana, and the third turning of the Dharma wheel, where we experience that oneness and wholeness, or emptiness, as the Tibetans would call it. When we experience that emptiness, that is the first samadhi, the samadhi of emptiness, or the samadhi of selflessness, if we're talking about um, Sanskrit translations to modern English, right? We experience that selfless state because self doesn't exist. Everything is self. And, and it's not that self is or is not good or bad or anything of that sort. It's just the entire universe is self. Everything is self. But the egoic and ignorant aspect of self, thinking that we're separate from everything, is problematic. And that's actually, you know, ignorance. And we, we, we figure all of these things out in, our, in the, our relationship with the first three steps. So everybody who's going through Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous is having these experiences with, you know, the trials of Milarepa and the trials of Hercules, and they're experiencing the eight limbs of yoga, and they're experiencing Buddha Dharma, and they're, you know, a lot of people are seeing it through the lens of, of of white Christianity, 
But and, but regardless, they're still having the same experience, regardless of what lens and perspective and language they're using to identify that experience. And I just became completely in love with the 12 steps as a result of my my brain not being able to differentiate between phenomena in general. I struggle with that. And uh, on an ultimate level, it's a blessing, but on a relative level, it's, it can be very frustrating. And we, when we move into step four, and I'm not going to go through all of the steps, but I do want to go through step four. And they all the steps actually are just as profound as any other spiritual tradition that ultimately results in liberation. But when we get into step four, we do a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And this is, you know, this correlates directly with the Linnaean Hydra and Greek mythology. And it also correlates directly with the five elements of, you know, almost every system of alchemy. So we have this resentment that we process. We have a resentment process, which is the beginning of our fourth step. People write it down. There's this great um, ritual that that 12-step communities go into at their fourth step. They do a resentment inventory. But what we do is we we um, we identify a resentment or an aversion, and then by identifying that resentment or that aversion, we're taught to go inward and remember a time that we behaved similarly as the person whom we are having an aversion towards or a resentment towards. And then we remember how sick we felt when we behaved the way that this person is behaving currently. And when we remember how sick we felt and how confused we were and how angry and ignorant and attached we were, we can have compassion for self because it's not difficult to remember how much suffering we were experiencing when we behaved in these unskillful ways. And as a result of having compassion for self, we're able to allow that compassion to grow and become pretty pretty much clarified into forgiveness. We can forgive both ourselves for behaving this way, but also the person who we're struggling with at the time, who is a reflection of us. And when we recognize this reflection, we're able to locate an attachment within ourselves because we do not respond with aversions to other people's unskillful behaviors after we've successfully processed those parts of ourselves. People can behave unskillfully, but we won't actually respond to it. We'll just recognize it as unskillful behavior. But if there's a deep attachment to it where we're struggling to process it and we have an emotional experience, it's because there's, there's elements of it in ourselves still. So it locates our attachment and then through generating that compassion, we're able to allow our attachments to liberate themselves and grow into discernment between what is real and what is finite. And we can recognize that we're actually the same, that we are mirrors of each other. And we become grateful for the people that we're resenting or resented because they actually helped us detox. And we can now recognize the infinite in them and us and see that we're the same, which brings us to equanimity and into a state of serenity. We're free from our resentment. We're free from our attachment. We recognize the infinite in all beings. And it was all as a result of processing this resentment, this aversion. And we do this process over and over again with every single thing that we list until we master this process. 
This process is no different than in Tantric Buddha Dharma as the Samantabhadra Tantra, where we have to master how to convert all of our anger into kindness and mere-like wisdom, all of our ignorance into forgiveness and recognition of the Buddha nature, all of our attachment into compassion and discernment between what is and what is not infinite, and all of our jealousy into gratitude and skillful means, and all of our pride into generosity and ultimately equanimity. So if we master this resentment process, we actually master Samantabhadra's ocean of blessings, which is massive. And we also master the Taoist five elements. We go through the five-pointed five star. We go through the elements of you know anger being space and attachment being fire and ignorance being air. And we have earth being pride and we have uh, water being jealousy. We see these elements being portrayed in every school of alchemy, which goes back to Chem, the Egyptian capital city, Chem. So this is the this is the way, alchemy. This is the way of Chem. This is the magic of Chem. This is the science of Chem. This is the science of Egypt. And then as people spread all over the world, they took this way of chem, this alchemy, and they took it into their different cultures as people migrated, and they taught it according to how those cultures evolved. So we see this and evident in like the Mabignagi and British cultures and Tibetan Buddha Dharma. We see this as evident in indigenous First Nations cultures. There is no culture on the planet that does not include these processes. Only the stories are different. The language is different. The characters are slightly different, but much more in common than different. And um, this is just how the steps, they just evolve. They just keep unfolding and they just keep basically grinding us down into dust until we find humility and we become teachable until we accept the fact that we really don't know anything, which is an open mind. So we get grounded down until humility puts us into a place where we have an open mind. And that is the purpose of Buddha Dharma. That is why people do strict, rigid discipline, whether it's Kung Fu or Buddha Dharma or whatever it is. You just grind yourself down until you are actually capable of having a truly open mind. And that is what the, the process of the steps does. It's not for everyone. It doesn't work for everyone. Some people don't need to be ground down anymore. They've been ground down their whole life. They're not ready to be ground down anymore. They would like something that's more directly empowering, something that they can recognize as empowerment. They don't want to admit that they're powerless. They've been powerless their whole life. There's no, there's no fruit for a lot of people. And a lot of people want fruit. And that's where, you know, harm reduction comes in. A lot of people aren't going to achieve liberation in one lifetime, but that doesn't mean that the people who aren't going to achieve liberation are not worthy of contentment and happiness and respect and dignity and that anyone is any better or worse than anyone else, depending on where we're at in our process. These are social neurosis that we all have to struggle with. So the elements of harm reduction really come into place where people aren't going to make it out of the gutter. 
People aren't going to escape the dungeons of samsara. People are not going to achieve liberation from certain aspects of themselves in this life. But that doesn't mean that they deserve to be alone or that they're not welcome in community or that they need to be criminalized, stigmatized, rejected, neglected more than they already have. So harm reduction really just comes down to meeting people where they're at. And as a result, not only do you have a community of people that's based off of supporting each other and allowing people to achieve their full potential, whatever that potential looks like, but it also lowers the crime rate dramatically. I mean, dramatically. You see less needles on the street. You see less people, you know, um, hustling to get what they need, committing crimes to get what they need when what they need is available. But everything has an neurosis, and you can see in Oregon right now, the state of Oregon, where they decriminalize drugs relatively chaotically, that they're now having to work out all the kinks of that policy sort of on the fly. It's a trial by fire, and I applaud them, and I think what they're doing is radical and, and potentially beautiful. but. It doesn't look very good right now. It looks very messy. It looks very ugly. And it looks like a lot of suffering, which it is, which it absolutely is. Samsara is a lot of suffering. And there's really no way out of that suffering that I've ever found, except for what was taught in the Buddha Dharma as simply recognizing the Buddha nature in all beings. And when we recognize it, we're no longer ignorant. And if we're no longer ignorant, then we don't have any attachments. And if we don't have any attachments, then we don't have anything to be adverse to. So we're no longer susceptible to this. We just recognize the divine, the infinite, and in, in each other and all beings. And, we're, and in that sense, whenever we recognize, we're able to walk out of samsara instantaneously. It's, it's just as lightning bolt. It's Shiva's trident. It's Padmasambhava's Katbanga, right? It's the it's the magic it's the magic scepter, which is the Shakti. It is the it is the Kundalini. It is just recognizing the Kundalini, the Shakti, the the Bodhicitta in all beings, and when we see it in all beings, human and non-human, animate and inanimate, we're no longer ignorant, and we're free to walk out of samsara. And that that's it. That's it. And and we do that potentially by doing the first three steps of the 12-step program over and over and over again until we have deeper and deeper and deeper experiences, until we just break through all the layers of everything that we think we know, and we're finally ready to actually recognize the goddess or, or the Shakti in absolutely everything, that everything is conscious energy, and that that's all there ever has been and that's all there ever will be and there's no beginning or end to this and we're all in the same boat and nobody is free until everybody is free and that's where the bodhisattva vows come in and there's no difference between the bodhisattva vows and the 12th step of 12-step programs where our 12th step is to go back into a society back into samsara and not to be missionaries and demand that people let us impose our will on them, but to find people that want support and to find people that want help and provide that as much as they want, not more than they want and not less than they want. Just provide whatever they want, right? 
And that's that's the really big thing because a lot of people get into this, I will fix you, I will save you. And I mean, we've all had experiences being that person and being with that person. So we know that that doesn't always work out. It, it doesn't work out in my experience. So the, the bodhisattva vows of just coming in and out of samsara, coming in and out of ignorance, and finding people who are also suffering from the consequences of ignorance, which is everyone, and just working with everyone and meeting everyone wherever they're at and recognizing the infinite in them and treating them as such and talking to the infinite in them and not talking to the homeless drug addict who's in meth-induced psychosis, but talking to the infinite that's inside of them, um, it produces profound results. It allows it allows healing It's like what you said in your book about wanting to go home but not knowing what home looks like or what it is. It allows everybody the opportunity to go home. I just want to be with you and be with all of that, all of that profound truth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The way that I um, frame this for myself is there's nowhere else to go and there's nothing else to do. I am here, I am here, I am here. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, no beginning, no end. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. And that that's acceptance. You know? And that's another thing that people talk about a lot in recovery is acceptance. Acceptance, as it is talked about in recovery, can take us to the same places as uh, Mahamudra or the Dzogchen teachings and uh, the Tibetan traditions and um, you know Indian traditions also, where if we just truly practice acceptance of what is, we're practicing ahimsa, we're practicing nonviolence, we're not struggling. And if we practice um, ahimsa, or I'm going to use the word acceptance, if we practice acceptance all the way to its core, we are not attached, we are not adverse, we are not judging, we are just simply abiding. And if we're abiding, then we are entering a state of, of shamatha. And if we're entering a state of shamatha, we're going to experience samadhi with the absolute. We're going to experience Zen. We're going to experience Sogchen. If we can recognize 
just the potential that some of these almost cliche words have in the recovery community, if we truly experience them and we recognize their potential, they lead to liberation. They're, they truly lead towards liberation. And I have a deep and profound love and respect for the 12 steps. I just no longer associate with them physically. I don't go to meetings anymore, but mentally and spiritually I refer to the to the steps rather often on a daily basis. I, I don't participate in meetings anymore because there's elements of that community that I find very difficult. And it's not the Judeo-Christian language of, of white Manhattan stockbrokers in the 1930s that the program is primarily, uh, you know, the literature is difficult for some. It's very sexist. It's very Christian. It's very white. And there's no problem per se with that. I mean, it creates a neurosis, but so does everything. But um, it can be difficult for a lot of people to digest, especially people who have just been digesting it for so long that they need a break from that. And um, I'm, I have a lot of sympathy and I can relate to and I can be compassionate with people that feel that way because I, I, struggle, I struggle with that language personally. I don't really like the language of um, the elite. 1930s Manhattan stockbrokers. I don't like the language of how sexist society was in the 1930s. I don't really like um, everything being Christian. I much prefer just open space. And there's inconsistencies and hypocrisies that are just very evident in them because these systems were created by humans. So there's going to be inconsistencies. There's going to be hypocrisies. But my biggest obstacle within the community and the programs of 12 Step is that they don't offer you a way out. They offer you a way to get 24 hours sober, which is giant and beautiful and sacred. But then there's like this if you leave, you're going to relapse. And if you don't go to meetings, you're going to relapse. And if you don't sponsor people, you're not doing your 12th step and you have to stay in this community for the rest of your life, or you're going to go back to your old self of, you know, reckless, self-indulgent, destructive behavior. And that's just not true for everyone. I'm sure there's people who are dependent on 12-step programs and community in order to maintain sobriety long term. But when I stopped going to meetings and I moved to the Buddhist monastery, I didn't have any cravings. And when I left the Buddhist monastery and I came to work in a suboxone clinic in a harm reduction center in Washington, which has one of the worst homeless problems in North America. I still don't have any cravings and I honestly haven't had any cravings since I did a true and honest deep third step. When I did that third step and I truly surrendered to the infinite and everything, when I when I truly practiced Ishvara Pranayana for the first time, 
I mean, this is a true story. I was on a mountain in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania called Mount Washington, and I was standing on top of this mountain in a park in a rainstorm with the person who was my sponsor at the time and uh, one of his sponsees who I had just met. And we were going to do the third step prayer, my third step prayer together. And we did the third step prayer in accordance with the with the language of the 12-step program, which is very much like he, him pronouns and the word God, which is great. We said the pronouns and the word God, and we said the prayer exactly as is written. And I meant it. I meant every word of it because I recognized it as the truth of, of Samadhi, and I recognized it as Ishvara Pranayana, and I you know, I surrendered to Lord Shiva because that's how I saw consciousness and, and the infinite at the time. And when I did in this huge rainstorm and there was all this lightning over the city, the rain stopped and the lightning stopped and this giant rainbow came out over the city of Pittsburgh. And then a couple of vans of capoeira dancers pulled up and people came out and started playing drums and doing backflips all around us in the park. And I was like, that's undeniable. That's not happening because I did a, a third step prayer or because I surrendered to the infinite and in all beings. That's just happening. And we're in sync with what's happening. And we're in sync with what's happening in such a profound and beautiful way that we got to witness what looks like a miracle. And, I, and I'm not going to argue with it anymore for the rest of my life. I'm just going to believe in it because this is all the, really all the proof I need of what happens when we can harmonize with, with everything internally and externally. I never looked back. I've never had cravings since. That's pretty much the largest miracle I've experienced in my life is the moment that I stopped having cravings. That was how I was able to, um, to get sober. And because I could recognize the yogic path in the 12 steps, and because I had familiarized myself with the writings of Patanjali and the Samadhi Pada intimately at that time. Probably the only thing I've read more than the big book is the Samadhi Pada with commentary by Pandat Rajmani Tijanat, who is a tantric yogi practitioner from the Sri Vidya tradition. So he's teaching these dualistic concepts because Patanjali's translations can often be perceived as dualistic, but he's teaching them through this non-dualistic Sri Vidya, like goddess lineage perspective, which allows people to see through the dualistic translations in a way that's just really profound. And I've studied that work and taught classes on that work with people who are in recovery in Pennsylvania. As a result of that, I was invited to stay with Siddha yogis who are of a tradition that has, you know, any, all these, there's neurosis to everything. So all of these cults have, you know, scandal. Um, all these cults have, you know, people that didn't feel like they got their needs met within them. And neurosis is experienced everywhere because samsara is everywhere. You know, the Siddha were, had a very powerful presence in the United States during the, during the 60s. Muktananda Paramahamsa came and started giving people Shaktipat all over the West Coast. Now there's an ashram in New York for the Siddha, but it doesn't have the same following as it did due to um, 
you know, internal power struggle and people's relationship with ignorance. But these these yogis that I met, they um, they had a very very profound understanding of Shiva as consciousness, which is an infinite force, and Shakti as energy, which is an infinite force. And because of my relationship and experience with the steps, I was invited to stay with them and live with them and study with them. And I received Shakti pot and was initiated into the Siddha lineage of Shiva Tantra through Ganeshpuri, India. And it was it was a real honor. It was something that I had never felt before. I had never felt the Shakti just rock me back and forth like I was a baby and like a, in a mother's arms while being, you know, a 30-something-year-old adult with, like, a year and a half sober. And um, I was still kind of, it was just very new and very exciting and life-changing for me. As a result of working with the Siddha, Muktananda Paramahamsa died. And after he died, or before he died, depending on um, our relationship with reality, He told some of his students to go practice with a Karma Kagyu Buddhist teacher who's very famous named uh, Kalin Rinpoche, who also has a rather checkered past due to people's relationships with ignorance and the fact that neurosis, everything has a neurosis. So my exposure to Tantric Buddha Dharma came through that. I got exposed to Tantric Buddha Dharma through Muktananda passing and having his students go study with Kalu Rinpoche. So I got taught certain Shiva practices were no longer called Shiva practices. They are now Guru Rinpoche practices. And, um, you know, Vishnu practices were now Shakyamuni Buddha practices. And Shakti was now Tara. And and things things just switched in ways that really weren't that extreme. It was very, very, it was a very, very streamlined, harmonious switch that they all fit together, right? It was like the five elements and the prayer flags of blue, white, red, green, yellow. Those are the five elements. Those are the five heart practices with forgiveness. And uh, those are the those are the neurosis and those are the wisdoms and, and the five Buddha families and just all of these elements of Tantra you can see how it progressed from India into Tibet. Then you can see how Tantric Buddha Dharma progressed through Tibet down into India very easily. It's almost effortless, the flow of it. So I got exposed to Tantric Buddha Dharma through the Siddha. And as a result of practicing Tantric Buddha Dharma, I prefer the Buddha Dharma because of how gentle it is. I have had a life of a lot of just a lot of fear and violence and horror. And as much as I'm into the the elements of of anger and death that are experienced through the tantric traditions of of India, my exposure to the Buddha Dharma was an incredibly gentle and soft feel to it my experience with say like white tara compared to um kali or durga was was more gentle 
it was softer and more it just felt nurturing and so motherly in that sense so i was like you know as much as i would like to be like hardcore and like super into drinking blood and skulls everywhere and and this horror show that i like um you know black metal but uh i actually would like to take a break and I, I would like to just take a refuge and sanctuary in the gentleness that that is Buddha Dharma. So I stopped practicing the Indian yogas and dedicated my entire practice to studying uh, tantric Buddha Dharma, not realizing that it would take me to places of equal and sometimes even more profound darkness and death and gore and hurt and anger than the previous. But I think that's just as a result of that's where the tantric path takes us. It takes us into non-duality. So that's all in dependent on our experience with life and our memories. So whatever our memories are, whatever our experiences are, if we choose to take these non-dual roads, we're going to experience our experience and have to relive the things that we deny about ourselves. And I, I experienced that uh, most profoundly through the Buddha Dharma. It gave me a very soft cushion and it gave me this great sanctuary of healing and and just very very gentle and nurturing until i was ready to actually deal with these things that i took on too soon through the through the indian yogic traditions join us next time for part three of samsara is for lovers with john hartigan which will be the final episode in his series for more information about John's work, check the show notes. Special thanks to Morgan Jenks, who provides our musical soundscapes and who is now also editing the podcast. Insert applause and cheers here, which allows me to get so many more episodes out into the world. Very exciting. If you'd like to become a patron and support our work, please visit patreon.com forward slash Robin Lassiter. And for more information, or to book a one-on-one -on -one session with me, visit honeyheart.org.